I've got to make sure that when they see David Harrison, they see a person who is joyful in what he's doing, trying to be authentic, having fun, and looking energized as much as possible. Because if they see the opposite, you know, it can taint their view of what they want to do, right? And so I, I don't take that that lightly, number one. So that's just, a, you know, that's a responsibility for a lot of our black professionals, so, you know, leaders. It's that you know, you've got to make sure that you're setting the example and bringing, bring that positive light because there's a lot of folks that are watching you and checking you out and asking, is it worth the effort to get there? And I, I would absolutely say absolutely. And that's my good buddy, David Harrison, who despite the odds, has been singing his song for quite some time. David is a leader at the largest professional services firm in the world. He also happens to be black. And while his skin color doesn't define him, he had to overcome a number of obstacles to get to where he is now. Here are a few mind-blowing statistics. Today, 1% of Fortune 500 CEOs are black. 7% of managers are black, better than CEOs, but still a long way to go. And when David became a CPA in the 90s, the percentage of black CPAs was less than 1%. It's crazy. It's pretty clear that there has been a lot in the way for David to reach the mountaintop. And now that he is there, he is giving back. Co-chairing Deloitte's Black Action Council, mentoring young black professionals, and educating all of us on how we can help talented black professionals who are trying to carve out a meaningful career. As you listen to our conversation, think deeply about three questions. First, what are you doing to really get to know black professionals you work with. Second, what blind spots do you have in understanding the journey of your black colleagues? And finally, how are you defining what success looks like for the people you manage? I am starting to get great traction with these conversations. I have several incredible guests in the queue who are excited to share their story of rock bottom and redemption, but I need your help in spreading the joy. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to Apple Podcasts and give Time to Sing Your Song a five-star rating. Please also share your thoughts as well. It really helps in bringing awareness of these awesome stories. Please also share the podcast with your family, friends, and colleagues. You can also subscribe to my weekly Time to Sing Your Song newsletter. If you're interested in getting a heads up on new shows, I also share other ideas, insights, and resources. Go to Time to Sing Your Song beehive.com forward slash subscribe. As I go deeper on this journey, it is becoming clearer by the day that time to sing your song is not about me. Rather, it is a platform for ordinary people to share their stories of how they overcame gnarly obstacles to live a life they only dreamed about. What's crazy is the variety of stories that are coming to me. If you have a story or you know someone who does, reach out to me. Easiest way is to send me an email at mike at time to sing your song.com, or you could send a direct message on social media, Mike Kearney on LinkedIn, and mkearney33 on Twitter. Okay, without further ado, let's get to my conversation with David Harrison. 
David Harrison, my good friend, welcome to Time to Sing Your Song. Mike, uh, I'm glad to be here. I know this was a long time coming and I'm looking forward to, uh, to the conversation. So David, I want to start with a couple events that really shaped you as a person, mm -hmm. as a leader, as I think a husband, as a father. And the first one I want to start with was one that you had shared with me offline, which was you were working at a local convenience store where you grew up, where you witnessed some people that weren't really great role models. No, I love to. And, you know, it's, it's all about experiences, Mike, I think that has shaped me. And I know we, we uh, talked a little bit about this and this goes back to, I was probably 17 and 18 years old. I think I was in, I was in high school getting ready to, to go to college and um, the store, I remember it's called Lambstons. It's equivalent to what would be a, a CVS today. And um, I got the job and was working there as a uh, stock stock person. I, they called it stock boy back in the day, but I won't use that. And my job, I came in at three o'clock and I was the, uh, you know, they would get all these boxes delivered and I was the person who would take all these boxes and cut them down and get them ready for the garbage. And I was an expert in uh, taking apart boxes and put them into one big box. So I did that and I, I also uh, mopped and swept 13 aisles. And boy, that was an interesting, every day, every day. But what was interesting, there were a number of individuals who worked full-time at the store. One of the individuals I remember, I won't say his name, but and it was another uh, young lady. And uh, they were at the time just alcoholics, man. And they, they were functioning alcoholics. They would come to work. When I got down there, they were usually downstairs every few minutes they had laying on a couch and you could smell them. It was the eyes were a funny color. They didn't really look good. And uh, I tell you, it was a defining moment for me because when I spent some time there and I really said, I came to the rationale is that this is not what my life is going to look like, right? First of all, mopping and sweeping 13 aisles every day was not something I wanted to end up doing. And then when I saw these individuals, it was really the first time, right? I was 17, 18. I, I grew up in the Bronx, you know, we were young folks and hanging out and doing the things that young folks do. And I really never really made the connection of that. What can that lead to? And I, you know, when I saw these individuals and the folks I worked with, and by the way, they were good people. They were good people. They were just, I, I, I just saw where life can end up. And it was a really, really in the, in my face moment. And I tell you, I said, nah, this is, this is not where David Harris is going to end up. And I think that really jolted me to really start thinking about you know, what life is going to look like for me. And it wasn't going to be working in Lambstons on York Avenue between 77th and 78th Street in New York City. By the way, the important, interesting thing is I had to take the train, Mike, and York was like the train stop, but the number six train stopped on Lexington Avenue on 77th. And York was probably the next block before you got to um, the East River. So it was a really long walk. I had to run it a lot because I was late. <laughs> and um, I want to make sure I, 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 um, I got there in time. And I used to look around and, and marvel what it would probably be like to live, to live 
in the city, in New York City like that. And I didn't live there, but my, it's interesting. My youngest daughter lived literally down the street from, um, from that area and, you know, explained to her the story. And she just marveled that I would ever do that, right? That that was my, you know, I used the word brought up see. But right. um, yeah, that's, that's one of the things that I think really, really shaped my thinking and was the start of redirecting you know, where I wanted to take, take my life. Well, I want to use that word or come back to that word in yeah. a second, but you almost had this juxtaposition. It sounds like, yeah, like yeah. here you are working a job. That's not fun. Observing people that are going absolutely nowhere in their lives. And actually you probably could forecast where they were going to go. And then you're walking down the street and you're seeing very, very successful people. <laughs> it sounds yeah. like that moment you were like, okay, time for me to really grind. Is that, is that kind of where your mind was at? Yeah, it, it, I, you know, it, I would love to tell you it's time for me to grind, but one thing I said is this, I cannot end up like this, right? And and it was, a, I love the work redirect my focus, but that was a game changer for me. And it actually changed, you know, I really got focused in terms of school and college and I had to do well. It was non-negotiable with my parents, but it wasn't that hard for me growing up. It wasn't that difficult to do well. But, and then it was right around the time when I started college and I went to Brew College in New York City where really, really started to, to get really serious about what I'm going to do and making sure I don't end up uh, in Lamston's uh, eight to 10 years later. It's weird, David, because I reflect back onto my high school years, which it sounds like you, know, you were about 17, probably a junior or senior in high school. Yeah. And I will tell you the thing that I probably owe more and I hate talking about the word success, but the thing that probably helped me along in my life more than anything, but was my high school job. I mm. worked my ass off at a place mm. called Navalet's Nursery, which literally <laughs> I'd be like, I'd be like carrying bags of manure and stuff like that to people's car. Yeah. But I worked probably 20 hours a week. And I remember thinking, this is what hard work really is. And it was the thing that instilled in me the value of hard work, but then it also at the same time instilled in me hey, listen, if I work hard at other things, I can be successful. And one of the things that I am a bit concerned about, I do push my kids is get a high school job because there is nothing that will teach you about real life, you know, making a little bit of money, uh, taking direction from a boss, like a high school job. And that's one of the things that concerns me a bit about where we are. I don't know if it concerns me that much, but one of the things when I pause and think what's something that kids could do that would help them along their journey is get a damn high school job. It will teach you a lot of things. And it sounds like, you know, this was one of those moments where it taught you like, Hey, I don't want to end up like these people. No, I did. And you know, similar to your experience, my kids worked, we were, you know, my youngest daughter, she was, uh, you know, born and she was raised when my wife and I were trying to make it. My youngest, we were kind of, you know, life was starting to be, you know, we were starting to figure out life and things were much more stable. We had a nice home and and she had a different um, experience growing up. But my wife, and I was I was the one, Mike, who was like, ah, she doesn't have to, but my <laughs> wife, Therese, was the one going, nope, she's going to go out there and she's going to work in TJ Maxx and she's going to have to fold clothes and she's going to have to get frustrated why people are not putting what they uh, try on back on the rack and she cleaned a section and 20 minutes later she had to go you know she had to go clean it again so I do I you know I think that's uh, 
that that builds something, you know. Um, and I think that's that's important. That's important for everyone. Hard work. I agree with you, because you know what we, you know, Mike and we're not only friends; we're colleagues. We work together, right, and achieve some interesting things and amazing things in our careers. And you know, one of the major ingredients, my friend, was hard work. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah. Something you, it's something you can't teach. I, I will yeah. say, and then we'll, we'll get moving because I'm talking a lot yeah. about my story, but I would say probably the thing I'm most proud about my daughter. So she's my middle kid born on nine 11 one, which is yeah. another story, yeah. but is that she worked the entire time during COVID. Remember when they were talking about the essential worker, she worked right. in a restaurant mm-hmm. and she went in every damn day. And I was so proud of her because, you know, she was the one that was feeding people, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. And there were so many of her friends and colleagues and others that, you know, their parents that don't work anymore because it's COVID, she stuck with it. And I think that taught her because she is a grinder. It taught her a sense of responsibility that I don't think anything else could. I think there's some agility in there as well. I'm sure they had to rethink how they were going to serve folks and how they're going to run a restaurant in an environment where they were trying to close everything down. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So David, I want to, um, I want to just touch on your backstory a little before we get into the second event, because this is really going to set up, I think where you've gotten to some things that you've done in your career and who you are as a leader, like we talked about before. So give a bit more on your backstory. Like you said, you grew up in New York, but I'm curious, like, where'd you grow up your family life? early influences, you know, just give us kind of a, a bit about David Harrison. Yeah. So, um, a lot of folks don't know this, but I was actually, my parents are West Indian. They're both from Jamaica. They migrated to London in the earlier, early, you know, early to mid fifties. And my sister and I were born in London. My mother went there for her nursing degree and literally, man, when she, Mike, when she achieved that certification, we were on a boat to the U.S. So I think I was seven when I came to the U.S. We grew up in the Bronx, um, in New York. Um, my parents had, we had a home. Uh, they had a two-family home that my sister and I um, grew up in. And it was a decent neighborhood in the Soundview section of, of, of the Bronx, right outside of... Um, Bronx River Housing uh, uh, projects, which was you know very interesting. But I, you know, I noticed the one thing I did. We did see the the decline of the Bronx, right? And you know, and and you know, all the things that went went down when people were trying to move out the Bronx and landlords were trying to figure out how to get out, burning their buildings down. And I, I recall, you know, walking to the store or going. A little bit outside of my neighborhood where there were streets was not only abandoned but burnt out buildings right that we you know we walked down um we walked down so that was a little bit about who where we where we um where i grew up i will tell you um i didn't it wasn't like i came out and like was going wow this this sucks no um i enjoyed growing up i mean i i, I enjoyed living in the bronx you know and uh, junior high school and high school going to James Monroe. And it was when I started to go downtown and start to go to school and 23rd and Lexington, where I started to see some, you know, understand there's a different world 
and different experiences associated with, you know, even the lampstands and so forth, where I think, you know, that really started to change my perspective again of, of where, um, where I was living. And I, I wanted to change that. That's kind of, I'm a, I'm a product of the Bronx. I'm, I'm in the, uh, I, I laugh and tell folks that I was uh, at the birth of the whole rap, rap scene and Africa Bambada and the Zulu Nation and Grandmaster Flash. That was, that was, uh, that was my era. And those were places where I was in and, you know, hanging out and listening to great music, but it was an interesting time. I shudder sometimes when I think about it. <laughs> What's interesting though, is it sounds like you grew up in a great place, but there potentially could have been some influences that could have taken you in a different direction. What do you think made it so that you didn't go down that path? No, I, I think a big, big piece of it was, um, I met uh, this young lady, I actually knew her, but we started dating, who's now my wife today. And her parents, her parents lived upstate New York, an hour outside the city. And, you know, she took me up there. I remember the first time and I went there with her and I had a Ford Granada. It's in the shop every weekend, but... Uh, <laughs> It, but it, not it, that it, weekend. That weekend, it made it up. It made it up. <laughs> and we pulled up to this beautiful, you know, this this home. There was nothing around it. Taking the car out, you know, I mean, parking the car, getting out the car. And my wife said, "Leave the keys. You just leave the keys in there." I was like, "Leave the keys? You know, you just don't. You just didn't do that, you know." And I still took the keys. And then I walked into the house. We just walked in. There was no locks on the door, and and we and I was like, wow, you know, that was a whole unique experience. And, and Therese, you know, her her parents, she, she grew up in New York City. She grew up in the Bronx as well. Her father was a construction foreman and built this house, you know, from extra leftover supplies from from uh, sites and so forth where he was working. And wow. I saw a whole different thing through Therese that, you know, I think that had a tremendous tremendous amount of impact on, on me and what life can, what life can look like. So I would tell you, get to the point when, you know, we got serious and we were out of the city, still living in the Bronx Friday night, we were probably eight thirty nine o'clock was on the cross Bronx heading across the GW going up to, uh, up to Warwick, New York to hang out for the weekend. So it sounds like your wife whipped you yourself into shape is what I'm taking away. You know, I hope you don't listen to this, but she has she had bigger influence. <laughs> she had much more influence than she thinks. I'm just messing with you. <laughs> okay, David. So let's go to the second event that really shaped who you are. Um, and what I understand is you obviously did extremely well in college. You had some other jobs, but then you end up at Anderson, which yeah. if people forget, Anderson was an incredible firm. It was one of the number one firms. Quite frankly, I almost yeah. went there. So tell us what happened. No, they were the number one firm. And, you know, they, they walked with swagger. And I learned a lot from them, right? I learned, you know, Anderson, they had a brand. They, they taught you how to, how to dress. And, you know, they, they, back in the day, they, you know, I remember we went to a place called St. Charles. And, you know, you, they, they reminded you that when you have your socks up, you should have see skin. And when you were walking, you know, down the hall, act like you had somewhere to go. Everyone from Arthur Anderson, they walk fast down the hall. Right. So, but, you know, um, I took a job 
Uh, I was doing some work there, and then an incredible opportunity came to work with the um, seat, this uh, CIO of Arthur Anderson, and basically be her chief of staff, which it's a phenomenal role. She's on the U.S. leadership team, and I can kind of control what comes to her, right, mm. and um, shape things that come to her. So it was a phenomenal job, but as I wasn't service, serving clients at the time, and then this whole Enron debacle came, and I don't want to go too much into it, but folks can Google it, and that took this phenomenal brand down, the behavior of 10 or 15 people, took the top brand down, and the firm firm went under. And uh, at the time, I didn't have clients. A lot of my other friends who still was in client service and serving clients were uh, acquired or there was other firms that took part of the businesses, but I didn't serve clients. So I ended up on the street. So um, you're on your own. Like you one, I'm one on my own. you have this killer yeah. job. I have a job at the time, probably paying probably like 160, 170, $170,000. And I go from that to zero. And then a couple of weeks later, actually maybe not even a week later, 9-11 hits. Right. So I don't know if you recall that time, Mike, but think about where we were as a a country, right. and that was you know similar to a a financial meltdown because no one knew what was going to happen. The job market dried dried up, so they a lot of you know friends in my situation went from you know jobs in the mid one fifties and taking a job for sixty five thousand dollars. So not only did you lose your job, I mean, I think the key point here is not only did you lose your job, but the, the economy's kind of in shambles. It's not easy to get a job. Like you indicated, you weren't doing client service at the time. So you didn't get picked up by another firm like Deloitte or all the other ones that were, that were like frothing at the mouth to get all these great professionals. What the hell were you thinking at the time? Like, (laughs) this is it. Oh shit. Like what's, what's going to happen to me? The, the, uh, the moral, one of the morals of the stories, uh, you know, always save for that that storm because that storm will come. And um, I did have, uh, I think I had like maybe sixty thousand dollars saved up at the time, which wasn't bad. So I had two. My wife wasn't; uh, she could be working. I had two daughters, and then hit you know the current situation. So um, I cut grass for about my grass for about a month. You know, I do some of my best thinking cutting grass. And um, I thought you were going to say you became like a landscaper. I cut a lot of grass, man. I'm trying to think what, how, what the hell happened? So I took up, you know, to some consulting things. And um, then I got a call from a really good friend of mine. And actually we, we spoke yesterday. I spoke to him about an hour and a half yesterday, how close we still are. And, um, he was uh, working with Robert Haft, I think I can say that, and was really doing well. And he said to me, hey, what are you doing? I said, hey, man, I'm trying to figure it out, figure this out. He said, let's do something together. And I was going, what are you thinking? I said, yeah, what do you got? He goes, nah, I don't have anything. I just want to, let's do something together. I'm not really enjoying what I'm doing. And let's figure out what we can do together. And I encouraged him. I was like, do not do that. You know, do not do that. Lou, it's tough out here and, and so forth. And he resigned from a job paying some decent money 
and kind of figure out what was next what was next for him doing that exact same time and then he had an opportunity where he had some connections with someone who owned some uh, Papa John stores, like uh, 60 Papa John stores. And um, a couple of weeks later, he called me up and said, hey, let's meet with this person because he's really struggling with his accounting. And uh, by the way, I am a CPA. I don't tell too, too many people that. Um, and so we met with this person and, and um, convinced him we was going to take, take over his accounting for 67 stores in 45 days. We had no people, we had no place, we had no technology, we, had, we didn't even have a chair. <laughs> Mike, we didn't have a chair. What gave and, you the confidence that you guys could do that? Hey man, when, you, when, you're, in a, when you're figuring out how they're gonna eat, you'd be surprised. You what know, you'll come up with. What you'll come up with. So, uh, we pulled it off and I think, you know, we were talking last night and we were at the beginning of this whole internet revolution because there was a company called Intact that was doing the accounting on the yeah. internet. No one ever heard of that out of California. And long story short, we took over the accounting 45 days. And I will tell you, talk about working hard the next 90 days, man, we didn't have a day off just getting things together and, taking over the, the accounting, the payroll, all that stuff, 40, 67 stores. And then, you know, we got our rhythm and it went to, uh, I think, got to over 150 stores. We were doing really well. You know, we were doing really well. And and then that was something that there's a, a couple of my partners or a good you know, friend who was a partner at Anderson at the time who went over to Deloitte called me up and said, hey, what are you doing? And explained to him what we were doing. And he, you know, he was like, wow, we should, you know, come check you, come check it out. Maybe we'll be interested in acquiring your um, your business. And Deloitte came by and, you know, checked out what they what we were doing. There was a lot of interest in it. But long story short, they just couldn't make the deal happen. So we moved on. We kept doing what we were doing and, you know, started to acquire. Remember Baja Fresh? Oh, yeah. Some Baja Fresh stores. And, and about a month later, he called me and said, hey, we're really interested in in bringing you in, you know, to Deloitte. And um, what do you think? And uh, it, was, it was a time when my daughter was getting close to college. And, uh, you know, I really sat down and, and uh, spoke about it. And long story short, I, that's how I entered into, came into Deloitte. The good news is when we started this business with my partner, the first, one of the things we talked about when we started the business is what would happen if one of us wanted to leave it? And so that was all contemplated. There was a roadmap. There was an exit strategy. And we executed it with no issues. And like I said, we was on a call an hour and 45 minutes or an hour and 40 minutes yesterday. I have so many observations and questions, though, David. So let's just I want to go back a little because yeah. you said a couple of things that I think are important. First of all, um, I've said this on my last few interviews, but you know there are a lot of people, especially in the tech sector, that are losing their job right now. It seems like almost every day you hear of another company that is yeah. is laying off people. So this guidance or any perspective you may have, uh, I think, will be very helpful to them. So the first thing that you said is that you had saved up a bit of cash. 
why did you save up that money? Did you do that consciously thinking, Hey, if something goes sideways, at least I could take care of myself for a period of time. Or were you just no, lucky? No, 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 no. Listen, um, I have always, you know, I'm a very conservative person because I've seen a lot of examples of storms that has come into people's lives and has devastating impact, especially for black people that haven't really planned for the storm. And I've seen great businesses and family owned businesses and so forth in the neighborhood that just closed up because of the storm that came through and they weren't really prepared to, to navigate the storm. So that was something that was incredibly important to me that I needed to make sure um, if a storm came and back then $60,000 was enough, you know, my mortgage was $2,000. Right. So think about that. So I had, I could survive a year and I tell you, it didn't, during that time, the thing I was most proud of, even though I was incredibly stressed, don't get me wrong, <laughs> I don't think my wife or kids really saw any negative impact on their, on their life. And we was able to um, continue doing all the things that they were used to with soccer and all the things they, um, they were able to do. I don't, you know, I didn't, I didn't, they weren't impacted by it, which was very important That's to me. I mean, I, the reason why I'm asking about this, because this is one of those things that you hear all the time, like a Dave Ramsey, you know, have a six month emergency yeah. fund. Yeah. But the reason why this is important is not, not that it just allowed you to survive and even thrive in that period of time, but it also gave you the opportunity to figure out what is something that I want to do versus just having to go right back into the same type of job or even worse, not being able to find a job and then really having some issues. But it feels like this gave you that space to create a business with your friend when he came and asked you. Yeah. You know, it, I, I, it's, I wish it was that it, it was a lot of luck, you know, and it was, you know, it was relationships I had before it was the hard work we talked about that this, you know, that my good friend Lou would want to leave the job and come and do something together. That takes a lot of trust, man, especially in that time. The one thing it did for me, Mike, the takeaway, and I think this, this, this event really propelled me because it took away what, the fear of losing my job. Say more on that. What do you mean? I mean, I get like it took yeah. away the fear I mean, of losing when, my job. When I, when I was able to navigate that, right, and take a situation that, you know, lost my job in a horrific time and being able, then being able to survive and, and become an entrepreneur and start my own business and being an entrepreneur that propelled me into a phenomenal opportunity at Deloitte, where I currently work. When I took a look, when, when that all transpired, the last thing that I was concerned about, which I was always concerned about before, was losing my job. And I think that holds, you know, I think you have, you ask the question when we speak all the time around people getting stuck. And I think a lot of, I think individuals get stuck um, for the fear of losing their jobs. It, 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 it prevents them from being innovative. It prevents them from being courageous and it prevents them from probably taking that opportunity that would drive breakthrough success for them. But the worry I, is, suppose I fail. Yeah, I was going to ask you that question. What value 
does it bring if you're not afraid of losing your job? And, and what you just said, I think, hits point right on. It's like you're not afraid of painting outside the lines, you know, doing the thing that everybody knows needs to be done. You're more innovative. You're more courageous, which all sounds good, David, but there's somebody out there that is scared shitless about losing their job. And as a result of that, they're kind of conservative. What advice would you have for them if they haven't lost their job and they haven't, you know, learned to live without fear like you did? Well, the, you know, the last thing I want for anyone of your listeners is to lose a job because it's, 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 uh, I wouldn't wish that on anyone. Right. So, cause it's not a pleasant experience and, um, just, for, you know, Life is about experiences, Mike, and I, I will tell you that is what it has done for me, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure someone is, is going to resonate with someone because they'll go listen to this guy. But that's my experience, and it, it it allowed me to raise my hand when a lot of people wouldn't raise their hand. It would it basically allowed me to take on risk that others in the room wouldn't take on right because it, it was too risky and the, the failure rate was was very high so how i live my life going forward since that time i do things that only has two outcomes success or failure in the middle i don't i don't mess around with it anymore oh that's interesting yeah it's it's kind of like a paradox though if you think about it because you, I would argue, have been very successful because you have raised your hands, because you have taken those risks, because you have lived without fear. And you probably wouldn't have gotten to where you've gotten to now if you didn't have that mindset. And the paradox is the people who are kind of being conservative are limiting their opportunities because they're trying to be safe. They're trying not to do anything that's going to bring too much attention to them. And as a result of that, they're probably ones they're likely the ones that aren't going to be as successful or potentially could lose their job, you know, during some of the tough times. Yeah. The big thing that's missing in this is that you gotta, you gotta have something that you bring into the table, right? You gotta have a skill. Absolutely. I, I lightly mentioned I'm a CPA. right? <laughs> and, and I also, and by the way, I'm folks who haven't picked it up. I am black. And if you still look at the, the number of CPAs in the United States, it's probably less than 2% today or CPAs. So number one, and then when I went and took on the role for the CI, uh, the chief of staff for the CIO, I started to understand technology, right? So don't be confused. You got to bring something, right? And and um, you got to be good at something. And that's one of the things that I, when I coach people, I, you know, I tell them all, all, all the stories I'm telling you, I'm not going to go anywhere unless you have something that you're going to bring to the table, right? And that, that, that folks are going to value. So you've got to have a, a skill or something that's going to, you know, be meaningful. Um, and I think that's that combined with everything else. Cause you know, I coach a lot of people, right. And the last couple of years, as you know, and you've worked with me, I've been focused a lot on how do we change the, you know, I focus a lot on DEI. How do we change culture? How do we bring more allies in, in, into the firm I work at at Deloitte? And I don't think that's a surprise. I don't think they'll be disappointed for me to say that. And you know, and I work a lot, you know, with black professionals and mentor black professionals. And the one thing that a lot we hire black professionals to do a lot of things, right? Cyber, come help us grow our cyber practice. Come and bring 
uh, artificial intelligence experience, come and help us with accounting and the, the, wild, the, the wide range of things that we, we um, hire folks to. What I see naturally is that they call me up and say, hey, I want to help with DE&I because they're so passionate in it. And my advice to them is, master what we told, what we hired you for first, and I will find you, right? Master what we hired you. Make sure you hit it out the park. And if you do that, you will be, we will find you and we will ask you for help. And I think that's a critical thing is that, um, not get distracted and make sure you master your craft in terms of whatever it is you're doing, master it and, and focus on it and uh, try to be the best at it. So all of this, you've got to bring something to the table, Mike. Yeah. I, well, I think that stands out very much in your comments yeah. and, and I'm glad you raised this issue because I think what is interesting about your position is you really are successful at Deloitte and obviously throughout your career. And you've done that as a black man and the percentages are low. And so I guess the, the first question I have on that is, do you have a sense of responsibility since the percentage of black leaders, not necessarily at Deloitte, but just in corporate America, let's just say, for helping people, for sharing insights and perspectives like the one you just shared? Where's your mind on that? You know, it's a tremendous amount of responsibility. You know, one of the things a lot of uh, my allies don't think about is when I come into, you know, I'm, I'm blessed to have a leadership role in the firm. I sit on, currently sit on a U.S. executive team. And uh, I'm not confused when I walk into the building, into the office, there's a lot of folks who are watching me. And I would have to say, um, hopefully it's just not black folks, right? <laughs> um, who's watching me. But it's particular, um, my black colleagues and professionals are, I think I've got to make sure that when they see David Harrison, they see a person who is joyful in what he's doing, trying to be authentic, having fun and looking energized as much as possible. Because if they see the opposite, you know, it can taint their view of what they want to do, right? And so I, I don't take that that lightly, number one. So that's just, uh, you know, that thing a responsibility for a lot of our black professionals, is that, you know, leaders is that, you know, you've got to make sure that you're setting the example and bringing, bringing that positive light because there's a lot of folks that are watching you and checking you out and asking, is it worth the effort to get there. And I would, I would absolutely say absolutely. Um, so that's, that's David, the, how, how do you bring that positive light? I just want you to make it maybe real for the listeners. What are the, some of the things that you do? Every day, you know, you got to figure out, um, I think one of my, one of my strengths, Mike, is that when times get tough, people want David around, right? I think that's one of so it's it's about how do you bring that I try to bring that confidence that we're, it's going to be all right we will figure it out. I am confident we'll be we're going to figure it out. It's going to be you know it's going to be some 
long days, long nights, but we're going to figure that's a, that's the game we're in. You know it, right? You're, yeah. you're in the consulting game. We'll figure it out. But you, a couple things, right? You got to take care of yourself, right? You, you know, in, um, you got to feel, first of all, I think you got to feel good about yourself, right? <laughs> when you're walking yeah. in, if you don't feel good about yourself, I think game's over, right? So you got to take care of yourself and, and, um, you know, the one thing I also have done, and I'm not saying this is right or wrong, but, you know, um, when when a lot of black professional, black people walk into a room, in, in, especially in the business world, we're still probably the only one in the room in certain rooms as you right. go up into the levels I, I, I'm in. And I know we spend a lot of time thinking about that going, oh my gosh, I'm the only one in the room. This is uncomfortable, right? I think what I've done, I kind of changed the lens, and I know we talked about this a lot, Mike. It's, I changed the lens and go, oh my gosh, I'm the only black person in this room. I'm going to rock this room, and they're going to remember me. You know? So it just makes that, and if, if you get mentioned by me and you coach, I talk, I talk to people a lot about just making that minor flip in how you look at situations and um, that could have a major impact because I see people carrying that into the room, right? You can see it. I'm the only, and it, it's it's natural to have. You know, you're you know you're you're the only person in the room, and that could be intimidating. But if you could figure out how to how to flip the switch on that, because I tell you, I walk down the halls, a lot of people, you know, we walk around down DU, Mike, and a lot of people go, "Hey, David, how you doing?" And I go, "Hey, how you doing?" And, you know, luckily for the name tags, right? We can't get rid of the name tags at Deloitte because I don't right. really know who this person is. And and, and I'll go, hey, I, I apologize, man. I don't recall. Oh, we was in a meeting three, I remember we was in a meeting three years ago and I was a, you know, person and blah, 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 you were in a meeting and they remembered me, right? And by the way, most of them weren't black, right? So they remember me. So I think it's about how do you, you know, for me, it's, you know, we talk about our superpower a lot in, at the firm. And at Mike, I know you and I have spoken about that. And my superpower is I'm not the smartest person in the room. I'm not the most articulate in the room. And you, I'm sure you figured that out with this podcast. But <laughs> I, I will say to you that, you know, one of the things that I want to be is ir- irresistible. And we talked about this, right? And how I define that in my lens is, you have an interaction with David, you're going to be really okay with another one. And that has worked with me inside the firm, outside the firm. I had the privilege of running a, leading a premier strategic account for the, for the firm. And that's worked with my clients. That's worked internally. That's worked with my friends and the social Nature, I was going to say work with my wife, but it's a little bit more than that. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're yeah. So, David, I, I, want to, I want to go down a bit yeah. deeper on this one because I think this is really important because what you're saying is I will oftentimes come into a room and I'm the only black person. And what you have done is you've almost turned that to say this actually could be used to my advantage. And yes. in order for it to be used to my advantage, there's something that I need to do differently, whether it's how I think or how I feel or how I act. And you've ultimately concluded on, I want to be irresistible. Is that right? 
I wanted to be just two things. I wanted to be authentic. Yep. That's, you know me, Mike, I'm authentic, right? You know me, I'm still bring the streets of the Bronx to some of the things I, I do. And, and it was about, you know, the word I use is irresistible because that's the word that came into play that helped me develop this, this mindset. But I wanted to make sure that when I left, you said, you know what, this is a, I like this guy and I would, I would, I would welcome another, another, another shot. I would welcome another opportunity of engaging with them because I've seen the other side, right? I've seen, especially in client service where people just come in and just want to try to sell something to a client that they don't even want and the client can't wait till they leave. Right. And that does happen. Yeah, we've seen that. And we've seen that not only externally, but we've seen it in the firm and people go, oh my right. gosh, right? I, you know, when, but, when, when that work person's walking down the halls, you know, people turn into their office and close the door. I didn't want to be that person. I wanted people to wait for me. Yeah, you, you're bringing up something though I think is so important and I think everybody can replicate this, um, especially, you know, you're coming at it from the context of like as a black professional, I think one of the things that you've said is you've got to shift your mindset and then you need to be who you are. And yeah. uh, one thing that actually drives me nuts and it doesn't matter really where it's from is where you're like, that person isn't coming from an authentic place, whatever that means, but you know where they're not being true to really who they are. If you were to you know, have a beer with them or to be hanging out with them on a weekend, they're kind of playing the corporate politics. And it sounds like what you're saying is, I come to work who I am. So this is David, David from the Bronx. And then I figured out that thing that actually distinguishes me. And maybe, maybe irresistibility is not the thing for everybody. But I think what I hear you saying or implying is that we all have something that we could bring to the table and bring it in an authentic way. No, I listen, you know, it, 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 this whole thing around diversity, equity, inclusion, I think some of the things that has worked for me just because I was a different person in the room and I brought a different experience to a situation mm. and I wasn't afraid to bring up that different experience. Mm. That was, that was in a lot of cases, very powerful to help drive this, you know, the, the solution or get through where we were stuck. Right. And so I've seen the power of that personally, where a lot of, you know, I've seen people, not a lot, but I've seen people go, oh, I'm not going to say that. And, and I don't know how many times, Mike, and this is not, I've been, in a, I've been in a meeting at the highest level and I walked out and, people, and someone said to me, I was thinking that and I didn't say it. Wow. Well, I said it. Have you ever said something that you regretted? Yeah, uh, you know, I've listen, don't get me wrong. There's there's people who really appreciate the authentic straight up David Harrison and there's folks who don't, right? And there's folks who you know, luckily I don't haven't come across those in the firm too much, but in the business world when I'm out there trying to engage and talk to clients and help them, you know, deal with a challenging situation, which is the, 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 what we do. Right. Um, a lot, there's a few, there's a, I come across a, a couple of people don't, don't appreciate it. Right. Well, I think it ties back to that whole idea of you don't operate with fear now as well, yeah. because yeah. when you don't operate with fear, then you're not worried about what everybody 
says, thinks, or believes, you do it from a place, you know, that is is real and authentic. Yeah, you know, fair is, I don't operate with a lot of stuff in my mind, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, you're in a room and you're not paying attention because you got stuff in your mind. Should I say this? Should I get up? Should I sit? Should I sit? You're just in the room, man. So, David, I want to pick up a point that you made earlier, which you said, you know, a lot of my allies, non-black professionals, let's just say, don't understand what it's like to walk in a room where you're the only black person. And I remember, I remember you sharing that with me a few years ago. And I think I had said, yeah, it's kind of a blind spot. Not that I, not that I shouldn't have thought about it. I should have, but I just hadn't given a lot of thought. And then the second you said that, I was like, Oh my God, I don't know what that would be like because I've never experienced that. And so my question for you is what should your allies or non-black professionals be thinking about in that context? Like, what do you want them to know? You know, uh, at the end of the day, Mike, it, it comes down to, I'm going to answer it very simplistic and go, go a little bit deeper. It's treat others how you want to be treated. Mm. Is that, is that simple? Right. And yep. over the last hundred years, I think when you look at blacks and that's where I come from, I can talk from that lens. And I'm sure my Latinx communities and the other communities have, have had to deal with this. We had to become, we had to be allies to the white community. Right? We yep. had to learn it. And so all we're, all we're trying to do when we're trying to do this at Deloitte and it's something I'm leading is, uh, and what it is, what this ally means, just seek to understand, right? And making sure that you understand, because the perception a lot of our allies have of us is comes from TV, the news, you know, in in other avenues where, quite frankly, they're focusing, they're trying to tell a story, and they're focusing on, you know, an aspect that probably is not the best portrayal of who we are, right? So. And they come, you know, people naturally come in with that mindset. So totally. what, I, what I would say is spend time to get to know people, spend the energy to get to know people, what makes them tick, what's their backgrounds. And if you do that, I think if we all do that and we do that in a way that's authentic, we're going to be a, a much better place, a much better world and uh, a society as a whole. As a whole. It's, it's interesting, David, because as I reflect on our friendship, one of the things that I've personally loved is how we have built a friendship, but then also, I think, an openness from both of us to have those conversations, even if it feels a little awkward. And I guess from, from my vantage point is that once I got to know you, it made it easier to ask some of the questions that I may have felt were third rail that are just totally normal now. And so I guess, you know, building off of your point, it's kind of like, really get to know them as an individual, appreciate the differences. I mean, I'll tell you one thing, not even just with you, but other people, I actually learn a hell of a lot more from people that have very different experiences and backgrounds than I do. And then you can have real authentic conversations. Yeah. And I think that's what we've been able to do. Now we, we've had a lot, Mike, and uh, I know we've been trying to get this thing done. This, 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 hopefully this is not the, the, la the last one. I think we, there's more for us to do and there's more stories for us to share, but um, I think you were comfortable. We were both comfortable with each other having those conversations where we were exploring. And you know what? It was in, and using a quote from our chair, Janet Fowdy, we were doing it with positive intent. 
Right. Yeah. And so that's something I picked up from Janet and something I say a lot. If, if we're just going to do things with positive intent, you'd be surprised at the outcomes. And um, hopefully, you know, you can call BS on me. You know me, man. If I'm saying anything yeah. on this podcast, you got permission to go, Dave, that's BS. Right. You, you said an interesting word, though, the notion of exploring. Yeah. I think sometimes people are so wedded to the way they look at the world and their beliefs. And what I like about exploring is exploring insinuates that you can change your perspective in your mind. And I think that's kind of what we've done is explored, you know, our, our own beliefs. And I can at least speak for myself. They've certainly have changed as a result. I mean, the easiest example is that blind spot example that I just uh, talked about a minute ago. Like I have a whole lot more empathy because now I actually think about it. And that was through the exploration of the conversations that we had. Yeah. You know, I've moved what three times for the firm, for companies, for jobs. And, you know, my youngest daughter is in London right now. Right. So imagine we're, and she's getting a whole unique experience, but I think that was helpful for me too. It's just seeing other places, seeing, seeing the country, I wouldn't say seeing the world and, and, and just having the luxury of working at Deloitte, I've seen the world and bringing those, those unique experiences where I traveled a world where I was the only, I was in Poland for 10 days years ago. And I think the only other black person I saw was Macy Gray, Gray, Gray on, a, <laughs> on, a, on a billboard. And those are the things you just got to, you know, deal with and, and, and go with the flow and, and figure out how you're gonna how you're gonna navigate that. This conversation makes it sound like everything's been you know difficult, but has worked out just splendidly for you. I'm guessing there's probably been some moments during your career, especially from a, a race perspective, where you got knocked on your ass or something happened. Was there ever a time? And you don't need to give all of the details that you know you look back on that did shape kind of who you are and the way you deal with this stuff. Yeah, listen, I, Mike, there's a, a ton of things that didn't go well, right? There were a ton of, of failures in my career. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that it was all rosy. There were things that didn't go well in my career. But, you know, the one thing I tell folks is everyone could be good. Everyone could be good in good times. Mm. It's who can navigate the bad times and recover from that. Because we're going to have that in life, right? We're going to have things that don't go well in our personal life, it's health situations. There's things at the job, I mean, in my career that didn't go well. I had, you know, failures of things. And some of the harshest feedback I received from folks at Deloitte, you know, who were, um, who I was re reporting to, you know, in the past, they're some of my best friends mm. today, you know? So, um, you know, I think, I think, listen, I don't want to give the perception like that life has been rosy. <laughs> I mean, it's all been, you know, I love, I love the trending, right? If you look at my career, it's like, you know, it's been going up to the right. If the line, if you draw the line, the line is going up to the right, but man, if you do that squiggly line, it's all over that line, right? The average is up, it's up to the right. You actually raised something I think a lot of people struggle with 
in their careers, whether they're just starting or quite frankly have been doing something for 30 years and that's taking feedback. Yeah. And it sounds like you even said some of the folks that gave you difficult feedback were or are now some of your best friends. What do you tell people of any type from any background the best way to deal with feedback? Is there something that you share? Yeah. So two things. It's, you know, you, I would say, especially for blacks, we don't get feedback. We don't get, we don't get honest feedback on a regular basis. So we have to take it on ourselves to make folks comfortable that we're going to get feedback. So I think feedback, what I tell folks, feedback is a gift. Yeah. If someone wants to spend the time to give you feedback, take the feedback, acknowledge the feedback and thank them for the feedback. What you do with the feedback is up to you. But, but you said that as a, as a rule of thumb, black people get less feedback. Why do you think that is? Because, you know, I think, again, it goes back to uh, the whole allyship folks. And there's just, a, there's just a concern of, you know, from folks giving... They don't want to offend them? Uh, yeah, you know, I don't want to say anything that's going to offend them. We're in an environment where, you know, very uh, litigious and folks are just concerned about feedback. You know how many people I speak to more than I should? And I say, so what do they tell you? Continue doing what you're doing. And I tell them, if someone tells you to do that, run away from them as quick as possible because they're setting you up. Continue doing what you're doing is not good feedback. Yeah, because there's always something that yeah. you can improve upon. Yeah, but I think I think also you got to bring a posture, Mike, where you're open for the feedback, you know? Right. And you, you know, they say when you're on stage, don't have your hands crossed in front of you. It's, you know, it, it puts a, it sets a tone and I think you've got to have a tone that you're really there to get the feedback, right? And again, I think what's very important is get the feedback on what you do with it. Like I get feedback to people and I says, hey, there's a delete key in your brain. You could use it and delete everything I've told you. But I've, I feel good I've, I've told you something. And, it, and if there's one or two things that you take from this conversation, that's great. And I, I use it myself, right? I get a lot of feedback. And, you know, I would tell you probably, you know, some portion of it, I delete it as soon as the, the conversation is over because it didn't resonate with me. But there's a, lot, there's a lot of feedback that I've acted on. Yeah, I mean, I think if you create a habit, I think this is actually a really important point. Create a habit so that in most interactions that you have where you just ask the person, do you have any feedback? Right. And maybe it doesn't even need to be that explicit, but you create the situation where somebody feels comfortable, which I think is important, giving you real constructive feedback. And then you said something else I think is important is as you get into that habit, ask for feedback, but be shrewd in what you implement. Just because somebody gives you feedback does not mean you actually need to implement it. And so oftentimes now what I do, because I struggled with feedback early in my career, I love it now. But I am super conscious. Of oh, yeah, I actually that's act. important. And you said something is get someone comfortable with giving you feedback. You've got to, you, you, I'll say it differently. You've got to make folks very comfortable to give you, you know, give you raw right. feedback and right. feedback that you need to make the changes that you're going to make to be successful. I have been very blessed in my career yeah. that I have people who's given me very, very up 
upfront, raw feedback. I am thankful for them for it today. And, you know, and my wife and kids, they don't, you know, I'm straight up, you know me, man. I'm like, I'm no chaser in David Harrison in my yep. drink. And it's, you know, my, my wife, you know, and, and, you know, sometimes I got two girls and sometimes she goes, man, I wish you would have been a little bit kinder. And I was going, I, I said, yeah, but you know, you know, T, my wife's name is Teresa. I call her T. I said, I said to her, the world's not that kind. So if they're going to get it raw, get it from me. So if they get it raw on the street, at least they, 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 can, they can react to it, right? It's not going to be something that they said. I'd rather them say, yeah, my father's been much harder to me than that. So I'm just trying to be creative. Yeah, I can deal with it. Right. I could deal with it. I could deal with it. So David, I want to um, start to wrap this up. So sure. a couple final questions. And you've given a lot of this. What advice do you have for those professionals that come and meet with you? You know, I would I would be very thoughtful and come make sure they come prepared with how I can help and an ask. A very thoughtful ask. A lot of times I meet with people, Mike, and they come and they they come to the office and they say, Hey, I just want to meet with you and see how you were doing. You want to see how I'm doing, right? And we and so, which I find very interesting. And we have a, we spend half an hour and I'm more probing in when the individual leaves, and this is anyone, right? At every level, and I'm going, wow, what a waste of an opportunity. Mm. What a waste of an opportunity. And, I, and part of why I've been successful is that if I've had a meeting, if I was to be able to get a meeting with a CEO or someone, I had an, I had an, I had an ask. I had an ask. So, um, and the other thing is, don't expect me, come to me with what you're thinking and let me guide. Don't come to me with asking me what you should do. Right, right. Yeah. I think that, I think that's a really important point. I want to, I want to pick up on the first point you made, which was have an ask and don't waste this opportunity, whether it's speaking with you or somebody else. The other thing I'll say is my experience, because I've been on the receiving end of asking for advice and guidance, is that 95% of people are really good and actually feel good when you ask them for advice and guidance. They may not be able to meet your needs right away, like they may be busy and it may take a couple of weeks to get on their calendar, but people are usually really open when you have a question or you're seeking advice. And then your point is, if you're doing that, be prepared to actually have a specific ask and to have given some thought to what you're talking about. Yeah, you know, and, and Mike, I'm not gonna disclose too much here, but you know, you and I worked for years ago a very difficult leader. And I won't say his name, but we worked for a very, yeah, yes. we worked for a very difficult leader and and you know, with our scars scars are still healing, or I may have healed from that. But the one thing I would say is that I would request one-on-one -on -one time with this person, and that was magical. Mm. He was a he was a pit bull, right? I remember times when we presented, and I remember some of the stories you shared. But boy, when I got him one-on-one -on -one and I had an ask, he's never turned me down. And I think I think I'm here today because somebody asked, and what he did set me up for some even bigger roles in the firm. 
Okay, I'm getting to the end. Um, so I want to go back to the challenges that black professionals have. And, and what I'm curious, David, is what do you think most people don't understand with regard to the challenges that black professionals have in navigating corporate life? And what I'm trying to do is kind of uncover maybe some of these blind spots, because at least for me, like I said earlier, mine was just because I hadn't thought about it. It was a blind spot. What else do you think is out there? Mike, you know, I've spent a lot of time on this in the last three years looking at this, especially yep. in the firm. This, there's, a, this is, there's a couple of things, right? And I mean, the one big thing I our study showed is a lot of the Black professionals coming into, let's say, our firm Deloitte, this is their first time into a firm like ours, right? And they're probably first or second generation who went to college and most likely the first person in their family, whoever came into a professional firm environment like, like Deloitte. And, and I think one of the biggest challenges is that they really don't understand what success looks like. Mm. Right. And so they're focusing on the wrong things, doing the wrong things, right. And getting bad outcomes. So if we can spend the time to make sure, and I think that's that's something that I think I noticed something that we're trying to make sure that our blacks and our Hispanics and our minorities who's coming into the workforce, if we could spend the time and being really clear what success attributes are for them, I think we're going to really change the trajectory because I think a lot of it is uh, a racially and ethnically diverse professionals or, or, or talent in the workforce are assuming <laughs> what um, good looks like, but I think that we've got to make sure they're fact-based on what good good looks like and what is what are, what is your what is corporate America? What's your job? What's your you know your department? What they're actually measuring as good and ask the question. Yeah, ask the question. Yeah, it, it's so goddamn funny because. The stuff you're talking about, and these are your words, like this yeah. stuff is not rocket science. I don't think you use the word rocket science, but like you had mentioned earlier, just spend some time getting to know the individual. Yeah. And I think what you're layering on now is also have some empathy from them because I think, and I think this is quite frankly universal. I always believe you never know what somebody's dealing with. You never know their past or history. You're not going to know because, you know, people aren't going to just share that in your first encounter. So have a little bit of empathy and your point that, you know, a lot of these professionals may be coming in and haven't been exposed to what they're now being exposed to and don't have a blueprint for success. So it's not only get to know them, but maybe just spend a bit of time mentoring them as to what success looks like. Yeah. And they, I, and I think you just talked about something, right? Have goals, right? Have two year goals, three year goals, five, you know, five year goals. And then you're going to have to adjust them because things are, moving so quickly but again those goals are not going to be you know they're not going to hit the mark if you don't understand what success looks like so i think you know i think one of the things that was helpful for me mike because i was very curious around the big picture of the organization right how does what i'm doing adding value to either the, the the business i'm in the division i'm in or the firm as a whole if you can make that connection I think you're probably going to have some really positive outcomes, but it takes a while, right? So the folks who's leaving 
school and early in their careers, it's really, you know, making sure you seek to understand what does good look like for you? Yeah. Don't, don't assume it, ask the questions and, and get fact-based. You know, we're all goal oriented now that we're all doing goals. I think the two most important days for me and at, at Deloitte is the day I'm setting the goals or the day we agree on my goals and the day I'm reporting on them, right? Because <laughs> I don't want to set goals and then I do it at the end and, and someone says, yeah, you know, th those are interesting goals, but it's not really what I was looking for. When you set goals, make sure whoever is overseeing, who you've got to present those to and buying, make sure you get uh, affirmative that if I achieve these goals, we're going to be good. You're going to fight for me for the best raise. You're going to fight for me for the best performance evaluation and blah, blah, blah. We're thumbs up. And if they go, yes, you're good. If, and then if they say, nah, well, you know, I'm, that's what you want to get. You know, you want to you want to get that dialogue. So there's there's kumbaya in terms of you know alignment. Yeah, alignment. Yeah, that you, my, you that's my word kumbaya. You call it alignment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like Kumbaya, but, but I think David, there's a couple of things that I want to close on. And I have one yeah. last question for yeah. you because I think you brought up a couple really important things. Once again, basic, but unbelievably important. We go through goal setting pretty much well at Deloitte when I was there, but every organization yeah. has individual goal setting. Don't just blow through it. Yeah. Put some thought into it. And then the piece that you're bringing up, that's really important. Go back to whomever it is, and this is a universal concept. Go back to whoever you know you report to and say, here are the very specific things that I'm looking to achieve over the next you know X months. Do you agree? And to your point, if I nail these, are you going to fight for me? Yes. And get them on record because you need to make sure after you do those things that you're taken care of. Yeah. That's the first thing you've said that really, really is resonating with me. The second thing and I think this is actually kind of a universal theme of this entire conversation. I think sometimes we, I don't want to say we overcomplicate this because it is a complicated situation, but the advice that you've given me on this during this conversation and over the last few years is just go have conversations, suspend yeah. self-interest. Um, what was the Janet term you said? Um, oh gosh. Uh, assume, uh, positive assume, intent. assume positive intent, yeah. assume positive intent. And if we do that, if we have real empathy and we have these real conversations coming from a place of sincerity and interest and open to change in your beliefs, I mean, there's going to be a lot of great things that can happen. And if all of us just do that, the world will be a better place, which sounds kind of cheeky, but I think maybe it's, I, I, I can count on my right hand and I'll probably have a finger left over to the number of times I reach out to someone and say, hey, I would love to get some time on your calendar and I'd love to pick your brain. And I don't think two people there in my career, Mike has turned me down. Right, right. <laughs> so, so um, do it. Do it. Just do it. Yep. Yeah. Cool. David, last question. Um, time to Sing Your Song is all about the journey that we're on. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking back to when you were 17 in that store in Manhattan where you had the seminal moment of like, Hey, I'm going to make something of myself. And then you had Anderson, which kind of knocked you on your ass and, and it took all of the fear out of you. And now you have had a very successful career, but I would argue probably one of the greatest impacts that you've had is probably over the last three years 
and helping Deloitte navigate uh, DEI, uh, the challenges that our black professionals had. I think you've been a very uh, important leader, very important voice in, in all of this conversation. So when you think back over your life and everything that you've achieved, is there, is there a song, is there music that stands out that really speaks to the journey that you've been on? You know, I, I put some time on this. I actually spoke, called my daughter in London this morning. I, I mentioned I was driving up from, uh, I had a four-hour drive this morning. And, um, you know, I'm, I mentioned I was from the Bronx, the, uh, where rap started. And um, there's a rapper called Biggie Smalls, mm. the notorious B.I.G. And um, he has a song I won't mention. I don't want my, I won't mention the song, but he's talking about He's given business insights. And the one thing I remember it when I've heard her, he said, real bad boys move in silence. Real bad boys move in silence. What does that mean to you? And to me, that's David Harris has never been the squeaky wheel. David Harris is not the one who raced, you know, wanted to get the role and I was fine with whatever role I had. But David Harrison wasn't the one who was going to be the squeaky wheel and be up there, the one who's going to make a lot of noise. Now, I've, I've got opportunities to, to do it, um, but that I, I wanted to just be, to, to move in silence, man, and make my, you know me, Mike, before I was asked to chair, co-chair the Black Action Council, which I'm delighted I did that at the firm, because I think, you know, you always think about leaving a legacy, but I was more a behind-the-scenes guy, right? right? And was there, but didn't, you know, didn't really have a thirst for the mic and didn't really, I was fine in front of people and I was on the stage and I was fine in the, in the last row. And it's interesting because I think one of the things that I've seen uh, interacting with you and then others is that sometimes those that don't seek those roles or the mic are the ones that can make the biggest impact. And I think your impact has been made because of all of the things that you have done along the way where you were try not trying to bring attention to yourselves, but you still made a significant impact. And I I've think that's why I've you- never, I've never seeked, I think you said something that I've never seeked the role that I received at the firm. I never went out and, and asked for it. And you know, someone called me and said, hey, we have a role we think you'd be good for. It. Well, David, I think uh, I think we got to come. We got to go. This wow. has been this has Remember been the awesome. beginning. I said, what, what are we going to be talking about for so long? I thought this would be thirty I, minutes. I know. I was like, David, trust me, we can talk <laughs> a whole lot longer. Which is why I think you even alluded to sometime in the future, maybe a year or two, uh, we'll bring you back on, and we could we can continue, continue the conversation. I'd love to do it, man. Love to do it. Awesome. Thank you, David. Thanks, Mike, for having me. David, thank you for your candor. I always learn so much from you when we have open and honest conversations like this one. I plan to give more thought on what you shared, most notably helping be clear what success looks like, searching out my own blind spots, and creating space to have real conversations. If you liked my conversation with David, go back to past episodes to hear other amazing stories of people who were once lost or broken and now are singing their song. Big thank you to everybody who listens to Time to Sing Your Song. Being part of this community that I am building, my goal is really to help everyday people like you and me use the hard times as a catalyst to create a life that we are all meant to live. Until next time, 
Start singing your song today because as the anonymous quote goes, when tomorrow comes, this day will be gone forever. In its place is something that you have left behind. Let it be something good.